Well, my name is Sharon Salzberg, and I'd like to welcome you also. I was sitting outside for a little bit of John's talk. Um, I wasn't sure if he, he used the line that I like the most, which is, if you're walking down the road and you meet some of our neighbors, look normal. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> I always like it when he says that. <laughs> Just look normal. <laughs> I'd like to welcome you here to this uh, rather abnormal experience. Uh, sitting on my left is Susan O'Brien, and then uh, Joseph Goldstein, and then down below is Patricia Genoux. And together we'll be leading this retreat. And, um, there have been several of you, of course, here uh, already doing a week of loving-kindness practice, and many of you just arriving tonight. So most of what I'll say, I'll direct... Um, to you who have just come, even though it will be quite repetitious for those people who've been here, that, of course, is a very major part of the tradition anyway. (laughs) So you can just relax and enjoy hearing the same thing again. It is somewhat abnormal to come to an experience like this, and it's also quite wondrous to be able to leave aside sort of the persona we need to maintain or we feel we need to maintain in the world, to be able to relax more fully, to embark on an adventure of discovery. I often think about adventure in our culture and how externalized the concept often is. We think we're having an adventure if we're climbing a mountain or Uh, you know, doing something kind of daring in that way. But we so rarely think about an adventure in consciousness, an inner adventure to explore fully who we are, not just that which is familiar or, or conventional, but to go to a much greater depth. And, and yet here we are being able to have that very unusual kind of adventure. I think I'll start with a story um, about this time when uh, Joseph and I <clears throat> were visiting a friend in Houston, Texas, and we'd gone out, the three of us, to a restaurant, not to have dinner there, but to order food that we were going to take back to this friend's house. So we placed our order, and then we were just kind of hanging around, waiting for the food to be ready. And Joseph struck up a conversation with the the young man who was working behind the counter. And they were just chatting, and and the man said that he'd never in his life been outside of Houston, and that his dream was someday to go to Wyoming. So Joseph said, well, what do you think you'll find in Wyoming? You know, what, what does that mean to you? And And he described this place, which was spacious and open and clear, where there was a sense of not being confined or or constrained, where there was real freedom, real sense of possibility. So Joseph looked at him and said, there's an inner Wyoming too, you know. And the kid said, that's freaky. (laughs) And he walked away. So, even though it made no sense to him, 
we come together in an experience like this with some belief that there's some kind of inner Wyoming. There is some space within that is spacious, that's open, that's free, that's clear, that is available, except we're so awfully busy in our life and distracted. So we come together in an experience like this to have a period of time when we don't have to be so distracted by other considerations. It's really, it's a tremendous gift to give to oneself where there's really nothing else to do except pay attention and to discover. What we discover in the course of this adventure is really multi-layered. There's no one experience we imagine you're going to have that is a sign of success or triumph that you can then go home and proudly say, I did it. Really, the image I most like to use in terms of describing meditation practices, going into an old attic room and turning on a light. It's like the light of awareness. It doesn't matter if the room has been dark for a day or a week or 10,000 years. We go in, we turn on the light, and what we see is everything. We see these, these beautiful, incredible treasures. They're so beautiful, we can hardly believe that such a thing exists in our own attic. And we see these dusty, neglected corners, and we think, ooh, I better clean that up. And we see these very unsettling, disturbing objects. And we might think, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? We see everything that a human being can know and want and feel and fear, which is to say there's no wrong experience you can have here. Everything is included in this field of awareness. Everything is a part of this adventure things we like, things we don't like so much. It's all okay. And this brings us up against one of our most common problematic tendencies, which is to judge ourselves incessantly. That's one of the first confrontations that we find. Because really, it's hard to believe, but one of the primary principles of this practice is that It doesn't really matter what we are experiencing. What matters is how we are relating to what we are experiencing. So all of that judgment and criticism and kind of projection into the future, it doesn't really count. What's important is how we are relating to what we're experiencing And we'll experience everything. Sometimes it will be very, very pleasant, like those beautiful treasures. Sometimes we're sleepy. Sometimes we're bored. Sometimes we're angry. All of it is part of the experience. So no matter what happens, you need not feel that you're failing. It takes a great deal of patience and and perseverance to confront that tendency to judge and to let go of it. And instead, have a sense of openness to take an interest in whatever our experience is. It's going to be kind of the flavor of the retreat in that way. Traditionally, we begin retreats formally by 
undertaking what are called the three refuges and the five precepts. The three refuges are refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. The Buddha is the historical Buddha as a teacher. The Buddha is also the symbol of the enlightened mind, of the mind which has seen through illusion, which understands that we don't have to just live mechanically, driven by habit. It's the mind which has been freed, that knows boundless compassion. And most important, that mind is a reflection of our own potential. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's not about declaring oneself to be a Buddhist or rejecting any other belief system. It's not about assuming an identity. It's about almost an affirmation of our own potential. In this tradition, it's always been taught that the Buddha was a human being. And the realization that he came to, the freedom that he came to, he came to through the development of his own awareness. And so can we. He asked, it seemed, some very human questions about the nature of life. In effect, asking, what does it mean to be born in this human body, to be an infant, to be helpless, to be subject to the the conditions around us, to be so vulnerable, and to grow up, to grow old, to get sick, to die, whether we like it or not. And is there a kind of happiness that won't be shattered as the body goes through its inevitable changes? And what does it mean to have a human mind so that we might wake up in the morning and we're full of fear and then love and then doubt and then faith and then sadness and then anger and then joy, just this cascade of emotions without our being able to contour according to our will or our wish? And is there a quality of happiness that won't be shattered, that won't be broken with the inevitable arising and passing away of all of these feelings? Is there a kind of happiness that's unbroken as conditions change? That, in a way, was like the Buddha's quest. And what he discovered as that happiness based on wisdom, based on clear seeing, is said to be available to all of us. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in our own capacity for understanding, for freedom, for having our own questions, whatever they might be, answered through the power of our own awareness. I can remember the first time I ever saw a Buddha statue, not like growing up in New York City, you know, in in a Chinese restaurant or something like that, but, but in India as, as a sacred object. I remember just looking at the image and being struck by a sense, a new sense of the Buddha as a completely integrated human being, somebody who was who he was. I experienced myself as quite fragmented, and I think many of us understand how our lives can be so, so sort of divided, you know, so that we're almost one person at work and another person with our families or we're 
um, maybe filled with loving kindness when we're all alone, but we have a terrible time when we're with people. Or we're fine when we're with people, but it's unbearable for us to be alone. Our lives can be so split off into all of these, these fragments. And yet here was a being who was one being. He was completely integrated. He was whole. So that his life rested on the threads of wisdom and compassion, whether he was alone or he was with others, whether he was still or traveling throughout India, teaching, he was who he was. So when I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in that possibility of integration, of fullness, of being, of wholeness. Then we take refuge in the Dharma, which is sometimes translated as the Buddha's teaching, um, the way, the laws of nature. It's affirming and openness to the truth of things as they are, letting this moment's truth, this, this um, immediate truth, be our vehicle for experiencing a more fundamental truth, not to have to disguise things or, or pretend there's some other way, but to see them just as they are. So that's what we are saying, in effect, when we take refuge in the Dharma. We're opening ourselves to the truth. And then we take refuge in the Sangha. Sangha means community. Uh, traditionally, it means the community of monks and nuns who have preserved the teachings of the Buddha throughout these centuries. It also means community of those who have awakened. So that when I take refuge in the Sangha, I feel as though I am joining a stream of men and women who, from the beginning of time, have been courageous enough to choose an unconventional life, not to be mired down in what is familiar or convenient, who have dared to take a risk to see the truth, have realized the truth. And I feel supported by their efforts as I take refuge. And it also has a a kind of contemporary meaning as the the community that is gathered here now, those who walk a path together, because in so many ways we can support one another and we inspire one another continually. So those are the three refuges. As I said, they really have nothing at all to do with calling oneself a Buddhist. In fact, we uh, often say, as is true, that the Buddha himself did not teach Buddhism, he taught a way of life. And so we come to an experience like this to more deeply understand our own way of life and how that might, might be enriched and transformed. And then we undertake what are called the five precepts, which are the, the guidelines, the kind of moral, ethical guidelines that actually inform our community. They bring our community together for the time that we are here together. Some of you have heard me tell the story of how many years ago, we we opened this retreat center in February of 1976. We moved in on Valentine's Day. And pretty soon after we opened, some of our friends came to us and they said, well, you know, our parents are having a really hard time with this, what they see as this strange new hobby that I've undertaken, which is meditation. And of course, 
the entire culture has swung a long way since then. I can remember in those days, I would be in, in the late 70s, I'd be at a party or some social situation, and somebody would say to me something like, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I teach meditation. And they'd kind of sidle away, like, ooh, that is really strange. <gasps> now, of course, um, you know, it's... Uh, so much more validated in terms of its role in mind-body medicine and and brain research and, and all of that. But this was back then. And so these these friends of ours said, you know, it would be really great if you would do a retreat for our parents. And we thought, oh, that sounds really great. So So we decided to have a retreat for all of these hostile people. <laughs> and we brought them here and... We knew they could never be silent. Um, like at meal times, for example, it was just too awfully strange. So we had them speak at meal times, and we ate with them so that they wouldn't feel too alienated from us. And I can remember on the very first morning of the retreat, uh, Joseph and I were sitting down at the same table, and, and this woman looked at Joseph, a friend's mother, and said, you've kidnapped my daughter and brainwashed her, and it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> so that was sort of the tenor of the retreat. <laughs> but one of the things I remember most distinctly about the retreat, <laughs> it changed. It got a lot better as the days went on. But um, one of the things I remembered was that how everybody would have to bring, they felt they had to bring, all of their belongings in here in the hall with them, and they'd come with these huge piles of things, you know, because nobody felt secure in leaving anything valuable in their rooms. And, you know, they'd kind of bring all this stuff and, and sit here. And, and then people kept locking their, their doors as they were leaving, you know, by pressing the little button. And we didn't have any keys. You know, somebody would have to run around looking for a master key to try to let this poor person back into their room. And then they'd do it again because it was inconceivable to them that they would not lock their doors even though they had all their things with them, you know? <laughs> um, it's so clear how most of us live each day. So it's almost miraculous to come to a situation like this, to a community like this, where we can actually feel safe, where we care about one another, where we respect one another and will protect one another. And that is, is really the flavor of these precepts, that really almost define our, our community for the time that we are together. And they are undertaking the precept to refrain from killing any living being, not to cause harm, but rather using this time as a time of developing a reverence for life. We undertake a precept to refrain from stealing, so you don't have to bring everything with you wherever you go which actually literally means not to take that which has not been given or not been offered, to develop a sense of contentment. It's really interesting to kind of let go of the known and, and all of the comforts that we feel we need to buffer our everyday and to see what's it like just to be with, with what I have instead of craving and clinging and wanting. So that's, that's the, the deeper meaning of that precept. We undertake a precept to refrain 
Um, well, here from sexual conduct, the precept in in life is to refrain from uh, using our sexual energy in a way that causes harm to ourselves or to others, to refrain from sexual misconduct. And here it becomes a precept really to maintain celibacy so that for the time we are here, all of our energy is being channeled into, into this process of greater awareness. We undertake a precept to refrain from lying, which also while here gets expanded to maintaining silence. And silence isn't absolute. There are many opportunities to speak to one of us um, or to the staff if you need to. But we do ask that you not engage in conversation amongst yourself. And that includes, you know, writing notes if they're not necessary and um, engaging in long soulful glances and so on. And um, it's just this, it's an interesting process to be alone in the midst of so many and to really make a friend of silence, which is so rare in our lives. Many times when people have not been on retreat before, the silence looms as just the weirdest thing. And people say, you know, I don't think I can do it, it's too hard, or my partner said I'd never be able to make it, or I've even heard, you know, people in my office have this bedding pool going on and how long it'll be before I break the silence. And, you know, and it just seems like it's going to be this terrible burden, but almost always people point to it afterwards as having been just about the most beautiful aspect of their time here. It's like for once in our lives we can be quiet. And we don't have to present ourselves to anybody as anything. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. We don't have to impress them. We don't have to appear a certain way. We can really gather our energy toward ourselves and look within and honor our own experience. We also have a a kind of addendum to that, John may have mentioned it, um, of not reading, which is another kind of renunciation. You know, it's not that it's so terrible if you end up reading something, but it's so easy for us to defer our own experience and kind of look to others to see what's happened for them. One of the kind of magnificent lines of my early meditation career happened when one of my teachers, this man named Manindra, looked at me and said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And it was a great moment because I felt like maybe it was the first time in my life someone was looking at me with that kind of confidence in me. Like you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the the confusion and the unhappiness that has brought you to India to begin with. You can do that. And so we look within rather than so extensively relying on the words and the experiences of others. And then we undertake a precept, the last precept, to refrain from the literal translation as intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. That doesn't mean... uh, prescription, medication, it means recreational drugs and and alcohol. 
so that we are actually experiencing the nature of the mind as the nature of the mind um, without substances that, that will cloud or, or confuse us. So this becomes the, the basis of our time together. The day, as you probably have seen um, on the bulletin board from the schedule posted, is a succession of times of sitting, times of walking practice, there are a few meals thrown in here and there, um, there are a few question and answer sessions a day, there's a talk, that means one of us talks, not that you talk, um, and then there's more sitting, <laughs> there's more walking, and it's, it is this opportunity for you to let go of all of those ordinary responsibilities to be able to embark on a very full journey of discovery. We practice several skills while here. We practice the skill of concentration. We take our normally distracted, scattered, fragmented minds, and we learn how to bring that energy together to experience the power of concentration, to experience the wholeness of our being. We practice the skill of mindfulness to be aware, to be connected to our experience rather than in a state of habitual reaction to it or kind of half asleep, disconnected, missing what's going on. We practice the skill of loving kindness and compassion, learning how to begin again, learning how to be generous toward ourselves, learning how to be kind toward ourselves and toward others. So based on the the foundation that we we build with the refuges and the precepts, we have this amazing opportunity to together be developing these practices. So I'll just close um, with this quotation from William Stafford, and then Susan will formally introduce the, the refuges and the precepts, and we'll have a chance to do a short sitting together. William Stafford, um, the poet, wrote, The things you do not have to say make you rich. Saying the things you do not have to say weakens your talk. Hearing the things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. The things you know before you hear them, this is you, and this is the reason that you are in the world. So I think sometimes we come together here more than anything else to touch again the things we already know, the things we know before we hear them. And it's, it's quite a, a wonderful opportunity. So we'll formally take the refuges and precepts together, but um, I'm wondering if everyone got one of these sheets that has the refuges and precepts on it. Is there anybody who doesn't have it? You people.
So we'll chant these together uh, in the Pali language, which is the language that was spoken at the time of the Buddha. And knowing there might be a few of you who've never done this before, I'll teach the chants. So the first chant is paying homage to the Buddha. And the first time through, it's done three times. The first time through, I'll do it call and response, a word or two at a time. And then the second and third time through, we can do it together. Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. And the refuges, the first stanza I'll do call and response, and the second and third we can just do together. Buddhang saranangachami. Namang Sarananga Chami Sangang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Buddhang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Dhamang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Buddhang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Dhamang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami. And the precepts, I'll do call and response. Panatipata, We Ramani, Sikapadang, Samadhyami, Adinadana, we Ramani, Sikapadang, Samadhyami, Abramacharya, We Ramani, Sikapadang, Samadhyami, Musawada, We Ramani, Sikapadang, Samadhyami, Sura Maria, Majapamadatana, We Ramani, Sikapadang, Samadhyami, 
idang me silang, magapalanyanasa, pachayo, ho tu. So we'll have just a short sitting this evening to begin together. <clears throat> so taking a comfortable posture that's upright and also relaxed. And you can allow your eyes to gently close. And take just a few moments to arrive in your body, letting the attention come fully into the body in this posture. Noticing perhaps points of pressure, contact, your sit bones on the cushion or chair. Your hands touching each other or your lap. Not looking for anything in particular. simply arriving in this moment in our bodies. And then letting your attention become aware of the movement of breath in your body. Bringing the attention to that place that you notice the breath most clearly. perhaps at the nose or the movement of the belly or chest. Seeing if you can make a connection with your attention to that movement of breath.
And when the mind wanders off of the breath, as it will, this practice is about recognizing that we've gone, gotten lost in thought, and letting go, coming back, reconnecting with the sensations of breath, as a way of arriving in this moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.